0: From St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on
1: the Air. I'm Elaine Cha. Later in the hour, we'll get to know Marion Middle School's robotics team in South St. Louis. They're gearing up to defend champion status at the Clavicus Project Jamboree. But first... Two days ago on this program, we talked with Faith Sandler, the executive director of the Scholarship Foundation of St. Louis. We talked about the lasting effects of student loan debt. We also asked you to share your stories about paying off student loan debt while your children prepare to take on their own higher ed loans. In other words, the idea of generational debt within families in real life. Our producer Maya Norfleet spoke with two St. Louis families about their experience with student loans and how it has shaped whole household conversations, options, and decisions.
0: Student loan debt is a burden to millions of Americans. Taking out loans and completing a college education can be the key to unlocking future earnings. But time and time again, we've seen how taking out large loans play a role in slowing down financial success for families across generations. We asked for your stories about student loan debt and how you talk about it with your families, especially with children who are interested in attending college or for those who are currently enrolled. We heard from 53-year-old Ronald Glenn of St. Louis. Ronald took out student loans for his undergraduate and graduate degrees and has made payments steadily over the years. For him, it was never a question of whether his children would attend college. In his household, he said, it was a rule. You had to go to college. So when it came time for his daughter, Zakia to consider college, he and his wife encouraged her to apply for scholarships.
2: We were going to apply for whatever scholarships that were out there. We were going to help her. That was our partnership with her. We were going to help her go through every scholarship put in, wherever we can, to help her with this, work with the school counselor, work with whoever we had to, to see if we could get enough scholarship money where she didn't have to pay any money for school, because I couldn't be on a loan for her.
0: Ronald gave his daughter advice for how to pay for college as she was growing up. Zakia, now a freshman at St. Louis University, remembers that advice from as far back as middle school. Even when she was younger, she was coming up with a plan to pay for school.
3: I initially always wanted to stay in Missouri for my first four years of college just to keep things easy for me, especially if I need to reach out for help or like any financial like help from family and others. So I always wanted to be in St. Louis. Um, I really didn't know how I was going to pay for college. I think the main thought process that was going in my head was just get into college, like just keep my grades up, get into college, that's all that matters, and the money will come afterwards. I didn't really want to take out any loans because I knew I had to pay it back at a certain time.
0: When Ronald, his wife, and Zakia sat down and talked about finances and how they'd pay for a college education, Ronald said they had honest talks.
2: We had that conversation with her as far as how to pay for school, that it probably would be difficult for her mom and I. Seeing that I was currently, uh, you know, a fresh graduate of Washington University and I had a lot of money and, and that was my, my, my graduate degree and, and uh, I was also, I'm an alma uh, uh, graduate of, uh, UMSO School of Social Work. So that money was, uh, you know, in a loan form that I had to pay back. So that was always on the table, but we didn't want it to be our daughter's worry. We were going to worry about this when we, what college, you know, that we were going to get into first. Where does she want to go? And then we're going to go into the financing, how we're going to make that happen after that.
0: Zakia received support from her parents and guidance from her high school. She also landed an interest-free loan from the Scholarship Foundation of St. Louis, an opportunity she discovered during her extensive research on student aid.
3: My school has a website that they go to, which is called the Scholarship Central, um, where every scholarship is uploaded on this website plus loans, and you apply by using um, just your FAFSA, any any additional information about you in school and extracurricular activities plus how your grades are and I went on there made an account and I was on my last string looking for scholarships because my deadline was coming up and the scholarship foundation just came up on a tab a random tab and I clicked on it and I just filled it out and I just prayed and hoped that they would give me a Called back, and which they did, which was very lucky of me.
0: That's Akia Glenn talking about her journey to college. We also heard from Erica Sanders and her daughter Michaela from St. Louis. When Erica first enrolled in college in 1992, she majored in education. Later in 2006, she studied organizational studies. When Erica decided to start her family and begin working to provide for her household, she decided to stop her studies for the moment. But the loan payments continued.
4: My struggle with paying off my student loans has been um, over many years now. uh, I I have started and stopped school a few times, so I have compound debt that I have never managed to put any type of dent in. So um, originally when I first even started looking into paying back my student loans, when I started getting the letters about it and everything like that, I was only working part time. And so based on my income, I didn't really have anything to pay back. And then, of course, as I went on to start working full time. Uh, they they were asking for me to pay, you know, a minimal amount, but still it felt like a lot to me because I was still making a minimal amount of money. Um, Since then, fast-forwarding into uh, my current situation, I am acquiring more debt as they are asking me to pay it off because I am back in school and looking towards, my daughter going to college.
0: During Erica's college experience between 1992 and 2006, Erica got married and became a mother to three. Erica's youngest child, Michaela, who's a high school senior, was not too concerned about how she was going to pay for college. But recently, reality has started to set in.
5: I think the more like now that I'm actually like applying for colleges and having to Look into the pricing of schools, looking into the pricing of like the pricing breakdowns of like how much it would be per year. I say that it is kind of like overwhelming a bit because it's just a lot to think about. What I want to study under is more than like just four years sometimes and I know that there's, like, a lot more schooling and a lot more money. I never really questioned the thought if I wanted to go to college because I did, and I wanted to get that experience.
0: Michaela wants to study psychology, which can take five years to earn an undergraduate degree as a full-time student. Her mom, Erica, is back in school studying communications at Fontbont University. Erica says she's excited to be back in the classroom, But she's crunching the numbers to find ways to pay for her degree as an adult learner.
4: I literally was on the phone with my advisor this morning, or on a Zoom call with my advisor this morning. And as we were looking at classes, I was sitting there with my calculator trying to think, okay, if I take this many credit hours, then it's going to equal this much, and then what can I put on a credit card, or what can I do? Like, what is it that I can pay for out of pocket so that I am not increasing my loan debt? And it, it really made me think, like, do you want to keep trying to do this? It's really discouraging. It is. It has been it has been the, one of the reasons that I've had to stop and start throughout my life. It is not the main reason, but it certainly does add to my thoughts of whether this is something that I can achieve.
0: Erica said it's tough to go back to school now, but she's thankful that she's able to move forward with her education to gain skills as she advances in her career. At the same time, she says she thinks about how much her student loan debt has held her and her husband back financially.
4: It has been the reason that we have gone so long as uh, renters and not homeowners. And it took advancement in my job. That almost makes me want to cry. It took advancement in my job for us to be in a position to be able to be homeowners. And even then, we weren't able to do it together. Um because that just, you know, it it weighs down on our credit score. It's being able to, you know, when I first got a vehicle as an adult, I had to have my mother as a co-signer. I wasn't able to, um, you know, get my vehicle outright. Um, We've had to do some cutting corners and doing some different things and not, you know, really being able to just live to the standard that we feel like we've worked hard for.
0: Erica's daughter, Michaela has applied to four colleges, three in Missouri and one out of state. She says she realizes how fast she's had to grow up in such a short amount of time.
5: As I'm wrapping up my senior year, it makes me really uh, think back and realize uh, why my parents were so, you know, kind of strict on me and hard on me about keeping my grades up and to make sure even though like even if my friends were doing something else that I had myself the other day before um, anything else. I am kind of growing up and I'm about to be on my own for a little while and it's kind of really starting to set in and I think that for anyone that if you really be like enjoy while you have it and even as you move on to continue to enjoy it I I'm excited to go to college, a little nervous, a lot of it nervous, but <laughs> still ready and excited to see
1: where um, she's going to take me. That was Michaela Sanders and her mom, Erica Sanders. And earlier, we heard from Zakia Glenn and her father, Ronald Glenn. They all shared their student loan debt stories with producer Maya Norfleet. We need to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk with Nick Hillman, professor in the School of Education at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. His research examines the ways policy, finance, and geography determine educational opportunities in the U.S. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Welcome back, I'm Elaine Cha. Before the break, we heard from two local families sharing what they've experienced dealing with school loan debt that stretches across two generations of higher ed students, parents and children. Nick Hillman is a professor in the School of Education at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He joins us today to provide context and insights around multi-generational student debt from a National Scope perspective. Nick, welcome.
6: Thank you for the invitation.
1: You've just heard from two St. Louis families, the Glens and the Sanders. Do their stories align with what you've seen in your research?
6: They do. They humanize what we see in the research. Oftentimes student loan research uh, focuses on numbers that round up to billions and trillions of dollars and millions of individuals and sometimes lost in that are the lived experiences of uh, what it's like to be um, uh, being told to go to college and and take out loans because it'll pay off and then it not working.
1: Now let's take a, a step back a bit Can you tell us how and why the federal student loan program even started?
6: Great place to begin. Um, One of the major places where uh, the federal government got involved with federal student loans and lending to students was in the 1950s. In fact, it was uh, connected to uh, national defense. The National Defense Education Act created uh, the first major federal loan program for college students, and then... um, in 1965, the Higher Education Act kind of expanded upon that and codified a lot of the loan programs into a, a more stable kind of federal policy. So we're talking uh, mid-1950s, early 1960s, uh, at a time when uh, the country still had not um, uh, reck- reckoned with a lot of the uh, racial inequalities um, legally that were um, on the books.
1: Now, the the mid-to-late aught, which is... A little bit later in some ways of thinking, a lot later in other ways of thinking, saw the introduction of income-driven repayment plans, which, dare I say, sounds just based on language, almost kindly, or at least responsive. Yet that approach is at the root of many issues, and that's something Erica Sanders alluded to earlier in the show. Nick, what are income-driven repayment plans, and what are they supposed to do? Income-driven
6: repayment plans, there are several different ones. You might have heard of income-based repayment or pay-as-you-earn or uh, similar programs like this. These tie monthly payments, monthly student loan payments, to the individual borrower's earnings. And so in Erica's case, she had mentioned um, being in and out of employment, um, working part-time, for example. Uh, These are examples of of economic hardships that uh, might qualify someone to participate in one of these income-driven repayment plans uh, and by doing so can reduce monthly loan payments or in some cases even uh, make them zero.
1: Now, in terms of effects, we did hear some from Erica. What effects do income-driven repayment plans have on borrowers in the longer term, particularly for those who like mom and returning student Erica have a child about to start college?
6: Wow, there probably two different things come to mind in terms of the effect of these income-driven plans. Uh, One of the effects is more theoretical than anything else. Uh, In theory, um, it's supposed to allow the borrower to participate more fully in the economy. And that was something it sounded like Erica was expressing not feeling fully included in the economy. And so um, these plans are supposed to be doing that. At the same time, there's a real specific benefit. Um, these, If you're participating in these income-driven plans, then loans could be forgiven after a certain period of time. Um, and uh, The sort of downside of this is that oftentimes your balance ends up growing during that time. So you actually owe more than what you took out.
1: And how common is that for people to owe more than the original amount they borrowed?
6: A recent analysis from the New York Federal Reserves um, just looked into this and uh, it was around 40% or so of borrowers were um, owing more than what they originally took out. And so um, those numbers, I'm sure, could vary depending on you know region or certain circumstances, but it is a sizable number of borrowers who are in this situation. And it's not the borrower's fault. Uh, it's not because they're not making a payment. It's actually by design. The policy, the repayment policies are designed uh, to grow in that way.
1: Nick, you study policy around federal student loans, which you've said haven't changed that much over time. If the first federal student loan program started some 65 years ago, why has this area of policy development stagnated?
6: That is the big question. I think that's the thing that the politicians in Washington, D.C. now are starting to wrestle with more than ever before that I've seen. Um, These uh, federal loan programs that originated in the 50s and 60s, their basic DNA is still with us today. And that is their mortgage-style loans, where borrowers um, take out debt and they repay it from uh, their future selves. They repay it over a course of 10 years. um, And there aren't a whole lot of consumer protections. That was true then, and it's still true now. But the big part that has changed in the 1950s and 60s, Public colleges were still e- still highly segregated on race, racial and ethnic lines. Uh, they still are today, but uh, it was legal, uh, legally sanctioned uh, at the, around that time. It's a it's a artifact of a era, of a Jim Crow era, uh, and a evo- evolution into a civil rights era that the student loan program was created. And we're in a very different era now, where where I think public policymakers are taking proactive stances and trying to dismantle those systems of inequality that have lasted for 65 years or more.
1: Mm-hmm. And then this leads to this question then about who is most hurt by that lack of policy development. You're talking about uh, sanctioned segregation. Uh, yeah. Who, who suffers the most because of this, this lack of development?
6: You know, I've got a. This is my own uh, theory on this. There's no no proof, no true proof to this yet. Uh, however, uh, I would say that um, people of color and black men and black women in particular um, have consistently been. Um, disenfranchised by the lending system, not only needing to borrow more money to go to college, but then in the labor force, don't have the same kind of return on that investment, even for the same degrees, and therefore aren't, uh, don't have the capacity to repay their loans. And so uh, that was true in the early 60s and 70s and into the 80s. And it's been true today. My theory, though, is that now more white upper class and white Uh, middle-income families are being exposed to debt, to student loan debt, and they're realizing how tough it is. And this is a truth that has been there for a generation, for black families in particular. And I think now uh, interests are converging in a way where there's political interest in this, not just because of the civil rights and inequalities uh, that it could deal with, but also the politics are right.
1: I'm speaking with uh, Nick Hellman, who is a professor in the School of Education at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And we're talking today about multi-generational school debt and whom it affects um, most severely. So we're here in St. Louis, and you've just mentioned or you, you mentioned earlier that study that came out from the New York Fed. Were there any, um, any things that were illuminated about what St. Louis families um, what they experience around some of the the issues that have come up
6: um, not in that report particularly but a couple of years ago the New York Fed did another analysis and as a side note the way that the they get their data are from credit bureaus, credit card companies, that's mm-hmm. how we get most of our data on student loan debt, even though these are federal aid programs. The federal government is not even putting out a lot of data uh, in the way that uh, I think is necessary. The um, That New York Fed analysis, though, looked closely at 10 of the most segregated communities, metro areas, in the U.S., and this was at the request of uh, Senator Cory Booker, um, The most segregated communities in terms of student loan debt and repayment and St. Louis was included in that analysis. In fact, um, about 25% of borrowers who lived in what the feds called um, majority minority communities, presumably communities of color, um, 25% of loans were in default in these places. And then if you look at places around St. Louis area where they were um, majority um, white, the default rate was around 10%. And this just is a red flag that you see across the country, not just in St. Louis, but it was highlighted in that report. And it says to me, there are deep structural and economic inequalities in these places where segregation is is reinforcing a lot of the problems that we have in our lending system.
1: And I think that gets to an important point that what we're experiencing locally very much reflects what is going on in other parts of the country. Um, Your research also examines the role, the roles that is, that policy, finance, and geography play in shaping educational opportunities. What does that mean, and how does it show up in folks' everyday lives?
6: One of the most accessible ways I think about this is, I know several years ago, we heard a lot about food deserts. We heard about places around town that maybe don't have um, access to nutritious, affordable food. we can see we can see these kinds of geographic inequalities far beyond food we can see it with healthcare. we can see it in our schools and we can see it in our colleges as well and so geography shapes our lives in so many fundamental ways it shapes our opportunities the opportunities to have employment the opportunities to have nutritious food the opportunities to pursue an education and so uh these these are um hard kind of sometimes arguably intractable problems that have just accumulated over years of segregation and years of inequality. And at the same time, optimistically, these are strategies for trying to address these deeply rooted problems locally and geographically. Think about regions and places and those might be opportunities to really uh, make some progress on some of the um, policy problems that federal and state policymakers are interested in.
1: Again, we are speaking with Nick Hellman, who is a professor In the School of Education at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Nick, in so far as developments that we've seen around federal student student loan policy, there is the Public Service Forgiveness Program and that's the program that forgives federal student loans for borrowers who work full-time for eligible nonprofit organizations and repay loans on time for 10 years. Can you share what motivated the implementation of that program and what changes have been made to it since?
6: Yes, and, and earlier um, the gentleman Ronald was um, referring to his education as his, his pursuit of a social work degree. So I have Ronald in my mind of somebody who is Uh, going into a public service, uh, a social work degree, for example, um, social workers, last I knew, don't make a lot of money and neither do a lot of public service Mm -hmm. uh, jobs in terms of at least compared to, you know, private sector jobs. So part of the motivation of the public service loan forgiveness um, is stemming from that fact. It's stemming from the fact that college is expensive and more people cannot pay out of pocket and rely on loans. um, And yet their career path Uh, is not one that's going to have a high financial upside. And so uh, there were programs, gosh, that were actually dating all the way back to, I think, the 70s and and 80s or some of these original programs. But the major um, public service loan forgiveness program um, started about in 2007 or so. And so um, if you're in these jobs for 10 years, in these public service jobs for 10 years, and you have loans that qualify, then uh, you could have your loans forgiven with a big asterisk. That asterisk is that there's a process you have to do to apply for forgiveness, and that process has been found to be pretty burdensome. It's getting better, but it's it's been very difficult.
1: When we spoke with Faith Sandler, who is the executive director of the Scholarship Foundation of St. Louis, uh, just a couple days ago, we had talked about how complicated um, FAFSA is and some of these um, official means by which we have to submit information. Why is it so complicated? <laughs>
6: <laughs> There's so many answers to this. Uh, I think one one answer is this sort of ethos um, of like, we have to protect against waste, fraud, and abuse. So, policymakers want to make sure that any kind of public subsidy isn't going to be wasted or, or like, you know, exploited. And so, you have all of these bureaucratic hoops to sort of prevent that from occurring. Um, whether or not it's a real problem is a different issue. But I would say a lot of the design. It comes from that kind of style of government. It's very much individualistic and very much uh, pessimistic about how people are going to interact with their government systems. Um, there could be other ways, there could be simpler ways uh, to, to design these policies, but again, we're so entrenched with the way we did it in the 1960s and through the, through the years that those kind of changes uh, are gonna take some, some pretty significant steps.
1: And are you seeing any signs of improvement uh, and if so, who's driving those uh, those changes?
6: Yeah, yeah, there are signs of improvement, and and there are a lot of uh, places to improve moving forward. Uh, I would say the federal, the Office of Federal Student Aid, which is an agency within the Department of Education, um, they've actually been really constrained with their budgets, and they're responsible for a lot of things going on with our loan system, and they are also proactively trying to make this system work better Um, but it's hard to do with one hand you know tied behind your back as they are so there's one piece of this and these are bureaucrats running these agencies they aren't you know they're not running for office these are folks who are just trying to uh, help and so uh, that's one place to look but another thing is that um different politicians are are building some of their campaigns as we have seen with president biden um Uh, they're building part of their campaigns around issues that deal with college affordability, student loan debt, the simplification of financial aid, and so forth, because it touches millions of people.
1: Now, if policy around federal student loans continues to go unchanged, you've talked about some of the things that are, are looking a little more optimistic, but if they don't change enough for the majority of borrowers, Nick, what do you predict will happen in the long run? to higher education, and the education of the American populace, which is not just numbers, as you said at the beginning, we're talking about humans.
6: Yes, and and I I don't want to just sound alarmist, um, or or doom and gloom, but uh, I am worried. I'm worried about the future and what path we're on if nothing changes. We already have extreme inequality in our educational systems. We have rich, rich colleges that serve very privileged students, and they're doing great, and they're they're becoming less accessible uh, to a nation that uh, needs these colleges to help promote social change and social mobility. So I'm worried, um, and I'm worried because What's going to happen is people are going to make their educational decisions based on finances. And they should not be making educational decisions on finances. They should be making educational decisions on their educational goals and the way that they can help uh, pursue those educational goals. Finance can stand in the way.
1: Nick, thank you so much for being on with us today.
6: Thank you for the invitation.
0: This episode was produced by Maya Norfleet. Our production intern is Avery Rogers audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dore.
6: Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. (laughs) Understanding starts here.
3: Our podcast proudly supports St. Louis artists by using music from Life Creative Group.